Okay, today in class, uh, or at least in this lecture, I'm going to be talking about British history from where we left off with um, James and Charles, with rather Charles and James, and the first part of the century, and really look at the second part of the 17th century and how theater developed there and all of that good stuff. So that is what we are going to be doing today. And let's get into it. All right. So the most important thing about James's son, Charles, probably is that he was not considered a particularly good ruler. And this led to a, really a pair of civil wars. Sometimes it's known as the English Civil War. The first and second English Civil Wars. Sometimes it's known as the War of Three Kingdoms, since England, Scotland, and Ireland were all involved. And the, the second title is probably more accurate, but since we are English-focused in this lecture, we'll, we'll refer to them as the English Civil Wars. And so the period of the first part of this was roughly uh, 1642 to 1646. And what you had is that uh, a collection of royalists supporting Charles I, known as royalists because they were supporting the king. They, they were supporting the royal party. Uh, and Charles was making the claim that he was above parliament in power, that he was... Um, sort of the divine in flesh on earth. Uh, and, you know, much in the same way that Louis XIV would a little later on. Um, Charles was also trying to uh, play his hand in this absolutist way. This is something that had been successful in earlier reigns in England. We could think of Henry VIII, who, who really did take an absolutist position. However, there was this thing called parliament in power and the parliamentarians at court they wanted to move more towards a constitutional monarchy which is what great britain has today um, they didn't have it at that time but that's what they were looking towards they saw the magna carta as the beginning of this tradition so it signed i believe in 1215 the magna carta um took much power away from the king and gave it to the nobility, right? It wasn't exactly power to the people, the way we kind of think of it, um, but it was definitely power to the nobility. And a lot of the nobility who served in parliament saw this as a justification for uh, their, their power. Okay. Um, so at the same time, you have the Scot, um, the Scots, the, the Scottish people uh, who, you know, the, the conventors, excuse me, the conventitors, which was a Presbyterian religious group um, that was also interested in uh, overthrowing the king. They're interested in kind of uh, spreading their Presbyterianism. And in 1643, Parliament sided with them um, as they were coming down to attack the king. And so what you saw now is a Parliament-raised army taking arms against the king. And this culminates 
We see in, in a few battles, uh, 1644, the Battle of Marston Moor. This is where the parliamentary forces and the Scottish forces, uh, they defeat Prince Rupert, who I believe was a cousin to the king, and the royalist, and they, at that point, move out of northern England. The royalists do. The king does. Um, in 1645, we see the establishment of a new model army, which was when England now has a professional standing army, much in the same way we in America have a standing army today. This then happened in England in 1645, where you'd have people who actually were, as a career, in the army, as opposed to raising an army for an occasion. We see in at the head of this army two major figures, Sir Thomas Fairfax and the very important Oliver Cromwell. At the Battle of Naseby in 1645, Cromwell and Fairfax soundly defeated the Royalists, and by June of 1646, Charles was in custody. Um, however, they decided to, to negotiate with Charles. This was not a... Um, this did not work out well for the parliamentarians. Uh, the new model army mutinate... Uh, the new arm... <laughs> excuse me. The new model army rebelled because they had gone for about a year without pay. And uh, part of that was Charles extending negotiations for what Parliament wanted and what Parliament wanted to do. And so that allowed him to delay funds, which allowed the funds not to go to the army, which, which made the army rebel. Okay. This eventually leads into a second civil war. Um, now, there is a group of Scots known as the Engagers. The Engagers kind of see the, the writing on the wall, and they decide to ally themselves with Charles, placing him on the throne. Um, and the, the Engagers then go to battle again with Cromwell and Fairfax. Um, you know, they, they're fighting them a few times. In 1648, uh, the Battle of Preston, um, this is where Cromwell finishes them off. And the people who are taken as prisoners, he sends to the New World a servile labor. So not only is the, the, the defeat complete, it also kind of destroys the lives of, the, of these defeated royalists. And early in the year, on the 30th of January in 1649, Charles is executed. Um, Cromwell takes over. They dismiss everyone in Parliament who isn't, um, isn't on the Cromwell side. Uh, they dismiss everyone who isn't a Puritan, which I'll mention in a second. I'll talk about that in a second. And they have a standing parliament which rubber stamps everything. And this becomes known as the rump parliament. The rump being the like the piece of the meat that's left over. So this parliament was the piece of the old parliament that was left over that would just let uh, Cromwell do whatever he wanted. And what we had then was really a dictator, which Cromwell was. Uh, now, we don't necessarily need to use the term dictator in, in a bad sense, um, how, but... 
Cromwell was that. He, he was the protectorate, he ruled over everything, and Cromwell rubber-stamped everything he did. One of the reasons for Cromwell's rise and for the split between Charles and Parliament, um, in part it was that Charles had a kind of flirtation with Catholicism, and that this will come back later on, especially after the Restoration. But Parliament, a lot of people in Parliament were a religious group known as a Reform Calvinist, which we today call Puritan. Cromwell was one of these people, and they were interested in kind of extending their religious views into further into England and into politics. And that is exactly what they did. Um, and so that's one of the, the reasons why we had a, a genesis of uh, this English Civil War, in part because um, Charles I was, was a weak king. Uh, he, he needed money, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but also there was this really growing religious divide. Right? So theater during this period... <laughs> wasn't good. Um, in September of 1642, the Long Parliament closed theater. Their argument was that in this time of crisis, people shouldn't be going out and enjoying themselves. They need to stay humble, stay home, um, not overly express themselves. This is a time for reverence. However, people still kind of went to the theater and did theater. Theaters were were forcefully closed, uh, but there was a little bit of a little bit of theater activity going on anyway. Uh, and then, in the eleventh of February in sixteen forty-eight, theaters, after being briefly opened, were closed again. There was very strict punishments for actors. Uh, it was not a good time to be and you know to be caught acting. I think you were whipped if you were caught the first time. And then the second time, the language was, you would be treated like a rogue. I do not know what that means. I imagine it sucks. People who were caught going to the theater or watching theater were fined a significant amount of money. And we're going to get into the anti-theatricalism in a second. Um, and so the consequence of this is that during what's called the Republic, this is the error that Cromwell rules. I mean, it's it's called a Republic, but it's really a dictatorship. Theater mostly dries up. Um, there was one professional theatrical person, I guess we'll call him a producer and a playwright, William Davenow. Davino still writes plays really in the second half of the 1650s. However, they're musicals. And so he starts to develop the British musical um, in order to get permission because after all, musicals were in band and we're just having a musical. That was, that was literally the argument he made. Cromwell bought it. He let him put on these plays. And you had these plays that really were, if you've ever read like the, the works of Davino in the 1650s, the plays he were writing were closer to masks than the type of theater we've been looking at in this class. And they were they had elaborate decorations and, and all that stuff. There's no open theater. He 
staged them in a private theater in Rutland House, which I believe was his estate. Uh, and the and, and so that was what's going on with performances. In terms of playwriting, there was a decent amount of playwriting, but they were what's called closet dramas, plays that are read, they're not performed, or plays that are meant um, meant to be read out loud with a group of friends. Uh, often these plays have elements to them that that indicate they're not able to be performed. So if you see like a lot of magic in a play or something like that, you, you know it wasn't meant to be put on stage. There's a great book from 1995 called Winter Fruit by Dale Randall, which covers a lot of these plays that were being written. And so there's uh, the, the conventional knowledge is that this was a dry period for theater. And in a lot of ways, that conventional knowledge makes sense. You know, it was illegal. There were harsh punishments, but people were still writing, right? People were still writing a lot. And it was almost like the theater genre changed from things that could attract a large crowd to things that your friends would like, you know what I mean? Things that you would enjoy reading. Uh, and so there is some scholarship to be done still in that era. But anyway, jumping back into history. So there we have theater, right? It kind of sucks compared to the early modern period. Um, so 1658, I know in class, I think I said 1659 that Oliver Cromwell dies. I was a little off. It was 1658. And Richard Cromwell takes over. Richard Cromwell is not a particularly good leader. The rump gets tired. The rump parliament gets tired of rubber stamping everything he is doing. They want a little power of their own. Um, they start denying him money. And he eventually gives over power to them in 1659. Um, Scotland's governor, George Monk, I think that's how you say his name, he marched south to oppose the Rump Parliament. Um, and in the 24th of December of 1659, they restored what's called the Long Parliament, which was the parliament that existed, the full parliament, you know, the, uh, the parliament that included royalists and whatnot, that existed before the rise of the Cromwells. That parliament in April four, uh, in 1660, excuse me, that parliament invites Charles back. Um, April 4th, Charles, who is the son of the executed Charles, he will become Charles II. Uh, he's, he's living in The Hague overseas and he issues a, what's called a Declaration of Brenda, um, in which he makes some promises to the Parliament in exchange for the Crown. A lot of these uh, promises include forgiveness for certain people for engaging in certain rebellious activities. This promise goes over very well. People are, are excited about this. And he returns to London, Charles does, uh, on May 29th, 1660, and takes back the throne. He's officially crowned in 1661, though we often um, we often date the beginning of his rule to 1660. Meanwhile, at the same time, many royalists, known as Cavaliers, really for his father Charles I, but you know Charles becomes Cavalier. That's where that comes from. Um, but they now become associated with Charles II. 
they come back from overseas from mostly france which was uh, sympathetic to these people and they began working in government they became known for their their body behavior um this is kind of where the 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 country wife that kind of attitude comes from the characters in the country wife they are very cavalier like that's how people think of them uh, okay so so theater at this time um this is the time is 1660 and later theater at this time is responding negatively to the puritans this is again the, these reformed calvinist who believed in predestination believed in no demonstration or displayed not even during christmas um and they were very harsh on the theater anti-theatricalism comes from a number of sources but as early as the 1630s we're seeing it from these puritans the most famous work being the Histriomastic by William Prynne, which is roughly a thousand-page rant on the evils of theater, uh, and you know he he became famous for that. Um, William Prynne, unfortunately, uh, well, more fortunately, depending on on your feelings for Mister Prynne, was arrested for this book. In it, he referred to all women on stage as whores. Um, there were women on stage in terms of um, kind of foreign troops. There was a foreign French troop that came through that had uh, female actors. We remember from our discussion about French theater that the French allowed women, the British didn't. Um, however, the problem with calling women whores is that in the masks, women such as the Queen of England performed. And so there was a little indication that possibly Mr. Prynne was referring to the queen of the country as a prostitute and as a consequence of that he was thrown in prison he had part of his ears chopped off he refused to recant he had another part of his ears chopped off his face was branded um but he stayed true to his word and so that was kind of the tension there these people were willing to endure torture for their anti-theatrical beliefs uh so so that's that's the puritan attitude and so what you're reading when you read country wife and you read the kind of the, the body sex stuff and horner has sex with i think four different women by the end and there's lots of dirty puns about uh about china and and you know things like that um china the, the stuff you eat off of not the not the country the the thing they're responding to is the attitude that prim had which is the attitude the government had for a very long time for you know a, a period it probably was at this point close to 18 years um on and off again and then for the last 11 years you know it was brutal um and being like overly sexual and having your content be focused on sexuality is your way of kind of giving the middle finger to the puritans this body comedy stuff is a response to that um, but anyway jumping back into into uh the history so charles reconvenes parliament um oh, we talked about this already charles um charles the first needed to reconvene parliament okay we don't need to go back to the stuff i can make this a little shorter uh good so moving on 
Um, so Charles II, now he's in charge, he opens back up the theaters and he licenses two main companies in London. Um, William Davenant, who we talked about already, he was the guy who did musicals, um, and Thomas Killigrew, who was a playwright in uh, Charles's father's day and, and he's, he's still around. So uh, initially Restoration Theater didn't have any plays because they were they were outlawed and the plays that were being written were not to be performed they were you know really for reading um and so you see a lot of restoration theater initially are kind of pulling out the classics they loved Beaumont and Fletcher and they like Shakespeare too but what you start to see is Shakespeare gets rewritten and um uh Beaumont uh, excuse me Davino rewrites The Tempest as the Enchanted Island um, which involves like the like the the main character having siblings that didn't exist before. Um, King Lear is rewritten by uh, Nathan Tate, and now it is a happy Lear. Uh, Lear Lear ends happily, and so that was happening. They they did not like sad morose stuff. So if you're going to take a Shakespearean tragedy, you're going to rewrite it to be super happy um, and have, have a lot more comedy in it. And that's that's how Shakespeare kind of circulated back into into the English repertoire. Uh, Charles allowed women on stage. Um, women played both male and female roles. The first women, I think I mentioned this before, but the first woman to appear on stage, we don't know her name. However, the first celebrity actress was um, Nell Gwynn, who was initially an orange girl, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's somebody who sells oranges at the theater. She became the mistress of Charles. She became um, she became an actress first. Then I think she became the mistress of Charles. Uh, she became a very famous woman, uh, and and many women followed in her footsteps. Um, women also played male roles they call they were called breaches roles and uh in, in part it's you know a lot of these women were were very very talented so you wanted them to try different things but also apparently like seeing women in pants was considered you know uh very appealing to men for some reason um you know seeing their calves and, and whatnot and so that became a big draw if you could take a popular actor or an actress and put her in breeches, uh, that, that would make a lot of money. Okay. Um, restoration comedies, we talked about this, they're smutty, they distrust conventional morality. And we know why that is. It's because Puritans had conventional morality and Puritans suck. And so everything Puritan is bad. Um, these plays are materialistic. They're not interested in airy concepts of what is good, what is bad. Um, they're not interested in Jacquees reflecting on Jacquees, reflecting on um, all the world's a stage, blah, 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 blah. They, they want the, you know, the Puritans were interested in the next life. The Puritans were interested in restraining the body so that you would be prepared for the next life, so that you would be um, be presented to be the elect in order to go to heaven. These guys hated that crap. They didn't want kind of, uh, they didn't want to philosophize anymore. They wanted to indulge and indulge they did. 
Okay. And so they indulged and they indulged. And, you know, this goes on well into the 1670s. And what you start to see happen is um, we're looking for an inheritor. You know, Elizabeth had this trouble. And now Charles II is going to have this trouble. Um, Charles II's brother is James, and he might not be a Catholic at this point, but he eventually does become one. Charles II himself is Protestant, though he's Catholic sympathetic, and Charles II doesn't have a legitimate offspring. He has uh, a very famous bastard, um, the Duke of Buckingham, um, but he's a bastard. You know, the bastards don't inherit thrones. Uh, and since he doesn't have a legitimate heir, this looks to be that James II, uh, the Duke of York, that's who New York is named after, by the way, um, that James, the future James II, right in the 1670s, he's the Duke of York, might be taking over. Uh, in 1677, James's daughter, Mary, marries the Protestant Prince of Denmark, Prince, uh, excuse me, Prince of Orange, uh, Prince William. And so now you have his daughter, Mary, becoming a Protestant and, and kind of going overseas to marry this Protestant prince. Um, a popish plot, which became, became leaked, what the popish plot was, was a kind of a hysterical fear, kind of mass hysteria, that James was plotting the death of Charles, so a Catholic can capture the throne. And, you know, the, the Pope was conspiring to get him on the throne, that type of thing. And this did not endear James to the Parliament or the public at large. And so what they started doing in 1679 through 1681 was introduce bills in Parliament to outlaw James from the throne. This became known as the Exclusion Crisis. Um, and what you start to see is some people in Parliament are really for it. Some people in Parliament are really against it. The Whigs be, are, were the people who became known as being really for it. The Tories um, became known as the people who don't. They, they're fine with James taking the throne. And this is where our kind of party system begins in England. And since it starts there, it, it kind of comes over to America. So, you know, should this Duke of York take the throne? Well, let's let's create a political party system to determine it. Um, and it's not quite the political party system that we have. You know, it's not like de Democratic and uh, Republican parties that we see in America. It isn't quite that stark. Um, also, the, the political parties we have in America are corporations that are really around organizing the election of candidates. This is much more of a, a a one issue conflict but this party divide becomes very very important and uh, even though i you know don't don't uh, have any kind of training in political science my understanding is that it, it kind of leads to uh, party politics much much later on um, though if somebody can correct me on that I, i'd be happy to hear it Charles II does eventually die in 1685. His brother James takes the throne. Charles's bastard son 
does uh it's not duke of buckingham excuse me it's it's jeffrey of monmouth i i got my my titles mixed up um monmouth does attempt a rebellion uh, and he fails uh he fails and is killed um so right away charles uh charles's throne is excuse me james's throne is questioned okay um so this kind of religious conflict we see overseas as well in france right around this time 1685 louis the 14th gives the edict of fontainebleau um, this revoked tolerance for french protestants and you saw a bunch hundreds of thousands of huguenots going into exile so huguenots are french um, protestants they a lot of them lived in rochelle if you know new rochelle new york that is named after a huguenot establishment because they they were fleeing from louis the 14th who had revoked his tolerance so you you could see that there's these religious conflicts building and they're not the biggest religious conflicts of the century i mean we had a 30 years war between protestants and catholics that had ended in, in 1648 that we talked about formally but that kind of animosity just didn't go away uh, and in england it's really affecting the rule um, so people looked to what louis was doing and they were scared this would happen too they knew james was sympathetic to catholics and he, he is i think he's a catholic but himself by this point um, and so people were watching james thinking to themselves you know oh no he's going to throw us all out of the country right that was the fear um and so they start watching what he's doing and james is expressing the desire to have tolerance for for all different religions um you know but he's taking some actions that make him unpopular the the actions that do that are first in 1687 um the king is the ultimate person who decides who runs these different colleges and universities in oxford and cambridge so oxford is a college town there's a bunch of them there and james is the ultimate authority on who runs that college um and the the fellows of magdalen college which are a group of people who were electing um you know elect the person in charge of the college the fellows decided to um go with someone james didn't like he replaces that person uh with a catholic and so that becomes if you imagine you have a society of people who are really really scared um and that they're going to be kicked out of the country like louis the 14th did well and you start to see james do things like that which includes not only forcing them to hire a catholic he actually then throws all the fellows of magdalen college out and replaces all of them with catholics that becomes a red flag as you can imagine um then in april of uh, 1688 uh, james ordered something called the declaration of indulgences to be read the declaration of indulgences by our standards is pretty tame it's basically saying that you're, you shouldn't be obliged to go to anglican mass 
which was the, you know, the official Protestant mass, you should, you know, be able to kind of um, go to the religion you would like within within certain boundaries or even pray at home. Um, and a number of bishops, Anglican bishops, refused to read the Declaration of Indulgences. And seven of them were arrested, put on trial, I think for treason, but, and this is the big deal, they were acquitted. So you had, uh, th that's a big black eye for James, right? So here's a guy who everyone's worried he's going to hurt the Protestants. He does these two big actions which look like he's trying to hurt the Protestants. They fight back, and it's a small victory, but with the bishops being acquitted, it's a clear victory. It lets you know that, oh boy, there's going to be some pushback. There's going to be some conflict for James. Okay, and what this leads to is what becomes known in 1688 and 89 as the Glorious Revolution. So we had the Civil War, now we have a revolution. So William, as we mentioned before, the Prince of Orange, ruler of the Dutch, or part of, of the Dutch anyway, um, and husband to James's daughter Mary, he begins to consider invading England. Uh, many English noblemen considering the thing, consider the things that are going on, and they invite him to the island to invade which means, you know, they'll, they'll help him out. Um, this is interesting because only a few years ago, like three years ago, uh, the, the bastard son of Charles II attempted this and was easily defeated. But things had changed so much, animosity had grown so much, that there was a lot of support for William. And what's interesting is even as a lot of these noblemen are supporting William, they still speak badly about Geoffrey. They see his activity as illegitimate, but William's as legitimate, which is an interesting divide. But anyway, uh, William delayed at first. There was a worry that the French were going to invade the Dutch. Um, nothing really comes of this. And the, the Dutch consul, the, the, the parliament there, um, outfits him for an invasion. He goes over there with a number of ships, more ships than the Spanish Armada had. And um, and he, he follows the command of those political figures who uh, sent him the invitation. And in the 5th of November, 1688, William lands in England with a Dutch army. The next month, two days before Christmas, James leaves England for France. As he's doing this, he um, initially he casts the seal of London into the Thames. He's then captured, brought back, but then allowed to go free. William is a uh, pretty smart guy, and he realizes that if you execute the king, you make a Catholic martyr out of him. And, you know, Catholics... We, we love our martyrs and you don't want to do that so what you do is you let him go he goes to france he lives out his days um there was bonnie prince charles his son who would later make a, an attempt on the throne but for the you know for for 
the sake of the current political moment, that's the very end of 1688, early 1689, William is now king. He's William III. Mary II is, is his wife. She's crowned Mary II. Mary I was Elizabeth I's sister. And so now you have the rule of William and Mary. And if you know the college, uh, William and Mary College is, is named after them. They founded it. Um, so what happens then in theater? So this is the 1680s. There is some theater at this point that starts to get decidedly political. You start to see some theater and a lot of it is still, excuse me, a lot of it is still royalist because you remember that they, the, the, uh, the people who are Whigs tend to support more Puritan politicians and they don't like theater. So theater is almost exclusively royalist. And when it goes political, it is mocking the Whigs. Um, however, after the post-glorious revolution, we're sort of burnt out on immoral, lusty behavior. And so certain playwrights start to think of theater as being something that should help people guide them to make more moral choices. Um, the theater wants to promote the idea that people are not like Horner and, um, you know, seeing other people as bad, but that people are mostly good and are interested in the good. Marriage is restored to comedies as a good ending. Uh, and one person who was involved in this was Richard Steele. Richard Steele and Joseph Addison uh, wrote this periodical called The Spectator, which involved a lot of theatrical criticism. Um, and, and Richard Steele is writing plays as early as 1700. However, like the, the play that really embodies these values that I'm talking about, we see this as late as 1722 in a play called The Conscious Lovers. Um, and it, it has these kind of uh, sentimental tropes. Now, people are mostly good. Um, the play is not real, even though it's technically a comedy, it's not funny. Uh, this Steele did on purpose. He didn't want laughter to get in the way of the the morality that would sweep over you. It's actually not a bad play, despite <laughs> despite imagining having to have morality sweep over you. Uh, it's a little better than that. We start to see things not unlike Moliere, called the Comedy of Manners. Oliver Goldsmith later in the 18th century would would write these. And these looked at kind of joking about the society that we had. Another popular type was the bourgeois tragedy. Um, the bourgeois tragedy was about the everyday and it was about the bourgeoisie, which was the growing merchant class that, um, you know, was coming out at the end of the 17th century and in the beginning of the 18th century, a lot more people were involved in trade a lot more people were rising in statue. There was a lot more money going to people who were not um, landed. And this is what today we call the middle class. Um, and plays started to be directed towards them. Most famously was a play from the late 1720s, George Lillo's The London Merchant. Um, and this play had a moral lesson, which really was, if you're an apprentice to a master tradesman, respect that master tradesman right this is a play about a a person who is an apprentice named george barnwell who becomes obsessed with a prostitute who's evil um and 
she convinces him to kill his uncle and rob his patron uh, his master excuse me not his patron his his master the person who's training him and give her all the money um and she she does this because she's evil and, and wants lots of money and every year the apprentices would have off one day a year to go and watch the london merchant and the idea obviously here was you know you you should respect your master um but you, the the point here is that this is very different from the country wife from that type of play the the class of people who are appearing in the play are lower and what's also interesting is typically with tragedy and comedy going back to aristotle for for you good folk who uh, read the poetics um tragedy was for high comedy was for low in terms of classes shakespeare does this everybody does this um Mo, you know moliere does this right the only people who are not of kind of the landed classes are dubois the servant um with bourgeois tragedy it's all of those non-royal people who are dealing with a tragedy right so this is this is the first quote-unquote low tragedy tradition we see in england and, and it's a big change okay. um so you know now that we've got kind of the genres in us uh going from the kind of the body restoration comedies up through the sentimental um let's talk a little bit about some of the the way theater actually developed in a, a kind of material way so when charles returned in 1660 he licensed two theaters the duke's company and the king's company they later became known as that um, this license this patent as it was known was afforded to william davina again the musical guy <laughs> um, he, he was still around and then uh, thomas killigrew was given the king's company license uh, this duopoly would more or less continue well into the 18th century actually it would continue well into the 19th century and theaters that were not one of the two licensed theaters were illegal theaters and, and they have an interesting history too um, so initially the uh, davinos company the duke's company took a theater at dorset garden um, and the uh, the theater royal in bridge street i believe was taken by killigrew's company um, and so for quite a number of years these you know theaters were working together there was a shortage of interest in the theater in the early 1680s um, it seems like people were exhausted by what they were seeing in the theater uh, the, the body comedies were not popular we were moving into a new new realm a lot of new plays were not being written even though a ton of them had been written earlier in the 1660s and 1670s you can imagine why because there hadn't been any new plays in a while and there was a demand by the 1680s tastes were changing the demand fell off and so the two theaters the dukes and the kings became the united company they joined together the dukes basically absorbed the dukes was a little larger it absorbed the kings um this was run by a by two fellows the the more famous one i believe his name is christopher rich who was um not let's say the most honest manager and he would 
not pay people. He owed everybody in the, in the company money. And eventually the United Company, which lasted from 1682 to 1695, broke apart. The most talented people, including the actor Thomas Betterton, who is the, you know, the most the most famous actor of his day, um, Collie Sibber, who was part of the theater at this time. He was very young and he becomes famous later in the 18th century. Uh, Kali Sibber also was one of the first people to actually write about the behind the scenes stuff with the theater. So it's, you know, kind of really exciting if you ever read his his apology on, on the theater. Apology means explanation. It doesn't mean I'm sorry. Um, but his apology on the theater talks about all of this happening and his adoration for Betterton. And um, it doesn't go quite into the financial detail, but what Sibber says is that if he were in charge and Sibber later would become in charge of a company, that he would pay actors, um, uh, you know, pay actors more regularly and also uh, kind of raise the salaries of um, uh, n n new actors and things like that, actors who are not quite as popular. Uh, so 80, in 95, they break off. They start their own theater in Lincoln's Inn Fields. Um, later, two companies... Uh, the two companies, the, the new company and the old, they formed theaters at Lincoln's Inn Fields and Drury Lane. Uh, there's also a concert hall at York Building where you'd have professional musicians like, um, you know, like Handel and them play there. Later, you would also have an opera house at the Theater Royal in Drury Lane. So some of these places have more than one theater. I mean, Drury Lane is a lane. It's, it's more than one building. And that was a place where like Handel's great operas were staged and you begin to see this kind of british tradition of opera which is interesting because handel is not british even though he wrote in english um and there was a huge love of italian opera going on in the early 18th century which is mocked in the theater so the theater the straight plays the you know the 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 comedies and, and whatnot they would always make fun of the opera for being kind of stuffy and filled with these upper class people who were going to see Italian operas, even though they didn't speak Italian and had no idea what was going on and just wanted to look good. Uh, and so there was that kind of divide between between the theaters. Um, but what happens is with these two companies, once they break apart, the model of the duopoly remains. And what ends up happening in the, I want to say the 1720s or 1730s, it's definitely happening by the 1730s, is that a third company comes in. And this is the Haymark Theater. And it is, um, the Haymarket is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, a square, more like a rectangle, um, where they sold hay. And Henry Fielding um, had a theater there. Henry Fielding, he's famous for his novels, but he started off actually as, as a theater practitioner and playwright and he did a number of plays there and they eventually angered um Walpole Horace Walpole who was the uh the the prime minister at that time and through the uh through his political connections he passed a law saying that theaters need to be licensed. This happened in 1737. Theaters had been licensed before they had been patented, um, but that hadn't been strictly observed. And in 1737, um, 
it it was it became strictly observed and the Haymarket was shut down and that's when Henry Fielding went into novel writing because what else are you going to do when your your business has been shut down by the most powerful political person in England um yep and so what you end up seeing then is until like the, I think the 1830s or maybe even later you have basically two companies in um, Lincoln's Inn Fields and Drury Lane uh and you have a lot of illegal companies as well. The most famous actor of the 18th century was David Garrick. And David Garrick actually comes out of an illegal theater. Uh, his, he was playing Richard III. And he was so good in Richard III that more people were going to the illegal theater than the real theater, which got the illegal theater in trouble because they were just too popular. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of the story there. That gets us into later 18th century, which which we could talk about, but we're, we're not really doing right now. Um, in terms of theater developments, so Drury Lane, we also saw theaters at Dorset Gardens. Um, these theaters were indoors. They, the, the play would start, you know, around three o'clock. Some plays would start at four. Court performances would start probably closer to eight, but the plays for the everyman were... Mm, not exactly every man, but um, the plays for the people who weren't in court started around three o'clock. These plays were smaller than the plays in Sh these, uh, excuse me, these theaters were smaller than the theaters in Shakespeare's day. Shakespeare's theater, the Globe, may have the capacity of holding 2,000 people. Um, in Drury Lane, you, you might be looking at 750, um, which means the ticket prices are going up. Um, the they didn't have standing areas anymore we all know about the groundlings at the globe you pay not very much money uh, instead here you had uh, backless benches and so people would be in the, these backless benches um we start to see machinery and complex scenery is being used and we also um we also see that a mission at this time ranged from one shilling six ducats to five shillings so what does that mean so a general laborer would make you know kind of general laborers would make about 19 pounds per year um so one pound is equal to 20 shillings um and then a you know a ducat or a pence would uh 240 of them would equal one pound so a ticket would cost a day labor around a day's wage, uh, which means the theater was much, much pricier uh, and therefore um, maybe had a higher class of people, even though the theaters were known for hissing people off stage, throwing food at them, throwing tomatoes at them. All of that stuff went on. There was a lot of hissing, yelling at the actors if they were doing a bad job, um, so on and so forth. Okay, and I think that does that for today. Um, I hope you enjoyed this little little lecture. The slideshow is going to be in the, the content folder area. I'll put that on uh, tonight or tomorrow, and I will see you Friday. Thank you.